You're listening to an ACCA podcast. My name's Miriam. For those of you who don't know, I'm a curator at ACCA and my colleague Bianca is our public programs coordinator. She's waving now. Um, and we would both like to start by acknowledging that we are on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And our guest speakers today, Dr. Quentin Sprague, is joining us from the lands of the Wuthering people. And John Keane uh, is on the lands of the Bunurong people also part of the Kulin Nations. And collectively, we want to extend our respects to elders past, present and future, and for any First Nations people who are joining us today. Before I hand over to our speakers, um, this is a really super brief introduction, but just to give you context, for those of you who might not have joined a book club yet, uh, this is a pretty exciting, lovely, little semi-regular program that we've been running partly in shutdown, but also um, as an outcome of something we've been working on for a while, which is uh, to make our publications, our ACCA publications from previous exhibitions available online and for free. Uh, so previous shows, you can now jump online and um, over the next year, we will continue to add those publications um, to be available. And so we thought it was a really nice way of engaging with some of the extraordinary thinkers and writers who have previously contributed to our publications to invite them to join us for um, a session to talk about what they've been reading, writing and thinking um, over this last time. And boy, have we had some productive uh, people join us, uh, including today. Um, and Quentin Sprague, of course, contributed a fantastic keynote essay uh, to uh, the exhibition Painting More Painting in 2016. Uh, and that's now on our publications website. And of course, he's joined today by John Keane, who has also contributed uh, to ACCA's public programs in recent years. And you can listen to John's uh, excellent lecture as part of the Defining Moments series, uh, which is available through our ACCA public programs website link. Uh, and you probably will have received those in your email today too. Um, so just before I hand over to, to John to start the session, um, we will run the session as a bit of a discussion between John and Quentin, and then uh, have time for some questions at the end. And you can jump in, perhaps even just if you want to gesture that you're going to jump in or, or you know I mean it's a fairly small group we can probably manage um, jumping in but if you want to press the space bar um, to unmute yourself or you can click unmute on your little square. Um, if you don't feel comfortable asking questions uh, verbally you can also pop them in the chat and you can do this throughout uh, the session and Bianca and I will help moderate those at the end of the session um, to John and Quentin. Uh, it's a really, it's a great pleasure um, to have Quentin and John join us today um, to discuss The Stranger Artist, which was released this year amidst all the closures. But I imagine for many of you like me, it's been a really great pleasure to have such rich reading material during this time. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to hearing you speak, Quentin, about the process of writing as much as some of the narratives that it addresses. Uh, so John, take it away. Thanks, Miriam. Uh, it's great to be here for this one. <laughs> um, so I'd also like to acknowledge the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, the custodians of the, uh, the land and adjacent waters from where I'm speaking. Um, hi, Quentin. Hi, John. Uh, it's great to be speaking to you on the other side of Nam, Port Phillip Bay. Um, maybe we should have paddled over into the middle of the bay to meet. <laughs> Um, given that we're talking from the south of the continent, I wondered if we could start off, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the, the region, the East Kimberley, uh, in which the stranger artist is set. Um, 
Yeah, thanks, thanks, John, and uh, thanks, Miriam, for the introduction as well. And uh, just um, just to add to uh, the acknowledgement, I'd also like to acknowledgement uh, acknowledge, sorry, the people of the East Kimberley as well, because of course, even though we're talking from uh, the various places we're at today. Um, the book itself does sort of, uh, well, it draws deeply on that country. Um, so I also acknowledge their uh, ancestors and leaders, past, present and future. Um, now, in terms of that country, um, anyone who's been to the Kimberley will understand how, I guess, striking and iconic uh, that place is. And uh, if, if you have had the pleasure to sort of travel through there or to stay for any length of time, um, you'll sort of understand, uh, you know, uh, how powerful that place is and also how that power is sort of apparent even to the sort of the, the casual uh, interloper um, uh, and also the people, you know, who might not sort of understand the stories or the sort of the various contexts of a place like that. Um, and I think one of the very interesting things about uh, being Australian and sort of, you know, living on the, the south coast is it's such a huge uh, area that, you know, sort of falls under that somewhat uh, problematic title of our nation. Um, and there are so many uh, varied landscapes and sort of varied uh, people that sort of cover uh, cover that sort of um, geographic map. And for me, I mean, I had the privilege of living in the Kimberley for a year uh, between 2009 and 2010. And um, for me, that landscape is really uh, one of the most uh, striking areas of Australia. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's really hard to sort of put it into words actually, but it is, uh, you know, hugely uh, different to, I guess, the landscapes we're familiar with down here. Um, and it does sort of get under your skin. And I would claim actually no great familiarity with that place beyond, beyond, the, beyond, the, fact, beyond the fact it's many roads and I've sort of, uh, you know, sat in various places and watched that landscape. Uh, further to the land, can you talk a little bit about the historic experience of the Gidja people of the eastern Kimberley in particular, the, the, the people and the land around uh, which the stranger artist is particularly focused? Um, well, like all and every part of Australia, there's a, 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 an often brutal contact history. Um, and I think the, the really striking and sobering thing for me about the Kimberley is it's, it was sort of pincered uh, right sort of at the very end of uh, the pastoral annexation of various Aboriginal country uh, through the Gulf, um, uh, you know, places like Borroloola and eventually down into the East Kimberley. And because of that, um, those stories are actually, uh, those events, you know, those sort of uh, first contact sort of um, stories are, are kind of very fresh um, by comparison. Um, and I think that has really shaped, I mean, even before I went there, that had shaped the East Kimberley in my mind. Um, mm. I was familiar with uh, the paintings that had sort of come out of there as part of the East Kimberley painting movement uh, to some extent but uh, familiar like a lot of uh, non-Indigenous um, Australians with the paintings of Robert Thomas. And he had uh, painted a series of um, 
paintings that referred to massacres um, in the, uh, he painted them in the 1990s. Um, and so I sort of had that uh, in my mind and I had some knowledge of those stories being present um, in the Kimberley landscape and in its uh, oral and visual traditions. Um, and that's something that I think underpins that place. Um, I think when we speak about the Australian landscape, sometimes uh, we risk uh, reducing it to these ideas of, you know, beauty and sort of, uh, you know, the striking nature of natural formations, etc. But I think these landscapes, and this is something that's true of the Kimberley, and uh, I imagine places in the desert that you're familiar with too, John, um, I think they cradle a lot of the darkness of uh, their histories as well, especially the recent histories. Mm. And uh, some of that power comes through um, equally as strongly. Um, so I think uh, in terms of that link between landscape, history, people, I mean, it's all wrapped up uh, in the contemporary moment, I think, and it's all very apparent um, to anyone who spends time uh, with the people of the East Kimberley or even just in that place. It's very apparent that history is not uh, something that uh, we can neatly isolate as a kind of uh, something that happened then. You know, it's something that's continuing to happen. Um, yeah. Okay, well, that uh, brings us really to the stranger artist and um, Tony Oliver, who uh, your book focuses on in particular, who um, had a chance meeting uh, with a, a Kidja artist in, in Melbourne and then was drawn to the Kimberley. Um, I think the focus on, on uh, this non-Aboriginal person who intervened decisively um, uh, with Gidja painting in the East Kimberley is what is really the defining part of your book and what uh, changes it from or uh, differentiates it from other accounts of the art of Northern Australia. Um, so just be interested to, to uh, hear a few things about why you were drawn to, to this particular character amongst a, a whole spectrum of of individuals that uh, come in and out and remain in the Kimberley? Um, well, there's a, there's a sort of a long and a short way to answer that question, I think, and given we've got, um, <laughs> we've got an hour, I think I'll sort of uh, try and flesh it out. But um, there's, a, there's a strong sort of personal uh, context in this book for me. Um, I think you, you're aware of uh, sort of my... Um, background and biography in terms of my interests and uh, how I came to be interested in sort of, you know, the art from Northern Australia. But um, I, I originally uh, sort of moved, uh, moved up north from Sydney in, uh, I think, 2007 uh, with my then partner and we ran an art centre on the Tiwi Islands uh, for two years in a community called Millicarpity. And I don't sort of uh, detail this in the book so much, but after that stint on the Tiwis, uh, we actually uh, were sort of handed the reins of what was left of uh, the organisation I write about in The Stranger Artist, uh, Durawan Arts. And we're sort of tasked with trying to uh, make it endure, which actually didn't um, eventuate. But uh, we spent 12 months there. So there was a, a period where I was sort of... Uh, I guess became uh, intimate not only with that place and some of the key players, but with um, uh, 
uh, I guess Tony's project there and the project he'd built with the artists, uh, Freddie Timms and Paddy Bedford, sort of, you know, key among them. And um, so my interest was really, you know, it came back to that as sort of a period of my life that intersected with that story after the fact. Um, and I was always uh, immediately fascinated by the, I guess that kind of uh, very intimate working relationship, um, the sort of the friendship and collaboration which had provided that organisation its kind of uh, driving force in a way. And one thing that interests me more broadly is how those kinds of relationships, um, you see them replicated or echoed in different places and through different people. Uh, but one of the interesting things is, is we don't talk about them so often. And the story uh, of Tony Oliver and the story of Jirawan and painters like Freddie Timms seem to me to be this sort of like um, iconic example of, of this. You know, you have uh, Barden who sits, you know, imperfectly, that's Geoffrey Barden at sort of one end of, you know, the history of Aboriginal painting for Western markets. Um, and then, you know, this for me seemed to sort of cap that at another point in the history. And to do so with um, the kind of uh, human uh, sort of blood and guts kind of character that sort of mm. really, um, to me, was the stuff not just of good art history, but the stuff of sort of literary imagining as well. Um, so I think I recognised back then when I sort of spent time in the Kimberley that the characters that sort of draw through this story are in a way, you know, to sort of use a bit of a tired phrase, but they're kind of larger than life and you sort of couldn't invent them, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's a, it's a product of very singular histories and it's a product of very sim singular and sort of complex people as well. Um, and, you know, I sort of think there's a, a, a bit of a truism for any uh, writer um, but I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment because I'm sort of sitting here in, you know, what's, uh, you know, in isolation, you know, in lockdown, trying to think of what my next book will be. And, uh, you know, a story does sort of choose you at some level and the best stories sort of, you know, they come and grab you and demand mm -hmm. to be told. And this to me was one of them. And I, you know, I sort of think I would have had a different relationship to it if I think if I thought someone else would tell it. But I, the more I spent on it, the more I realised that it wasn't going to be told necessarily. And uh, I could be corrected, but you know, I think it's actually quite an important uh, and compelling story to have out there. Mm, certainly, yeah, he's a very, in my uh, sense, and having read the book, uh, he's a very particular case uh, amongst the sort of hordes of southern whitefellas who've gone to um, uh, central Australia and northern Australia in the in the last uh, four or five decades to work with Aboriginal artists. Uh, and I'd like to return to that more general discussion a little later. Um, but your title, uh, The Stranger Artist, uh, sets up a whole lot of questions. So I wonder if you could talk about in which ways, and I'm presuming that uh, Tony Oliver is the stranger artist of your title, and in what, what sense he is stranger or a stranger? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And um, I think that's a fair presumption to make that the stranger artist refers to Tony Oliver. I mean, we certainly, uh, as, as 
you know, you read that book, it's through his experiences or, you know, it's his experience that sort of provide the through line. Um, but I would also like readers to kind of think of, you know, other figures in that story as occupying a sort of similar space. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freddie Timms to me is very much uh, sort of that kind of intermediary character as well. And that's really what the title refers to. Um, as you know, and as some people on the, uh, in our uh, book club here today will sort of know, I've written a PhD as well. And uh, none of that really is in this book. I mean, this book's a totally different beast than a PhD, but if there's anything left of my PhD, it's just in that title. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the Stranger Artist is a, is a sort of a figure who, um, uh, I guess, acts between, um, you know, groups. And in this case, it's someone who's acting between, um, I guess, what you could refer to as sort of traditionally minded uh, Aboriginal painters in the Western art world. And that links into a sort of a broader theory about the power of uh, the stranger or the outsider in social groupings in all sorts of uh, cases. And their power sort of draws from them being um, welcomed into the group, but them also being outside it. So they're sort of, they can leave, uh, they bring new knowledge into a social group, um, but they also disseminate uh, knowledge and power from that social group elsewhere. Um, and the title actually refers directly to a uh, phrase. It's a phrase that um, uh, traces its lineage to a, a Canadian art historian called Ruth B. Phillips, who writes about uh, stranger artists in the production and sort of invention of like First Nations Canadian art in the first uh, decades uh, of the 20th century in Canada. And again, they're sort of figures who um, arrive from elsewhere. Um, and one case she talks about is sort of, you know, modernist-minded Europeans who end up in the, you know, the new country and uh, sort of go there with ideas of their own, which are then sort of meet and adapt to the ideas they find. Now, um, it's also a title that speaks to that sort of hybrid space. And for me, uh, that's really a space that in Australian art is exceedingly important and exceedingly uh, interesting. But I think more broadly in the Australian psyche, it's that space which really forms us, right? It's a space of trauma. It's a space of possibility. You know, it's Mm -hmm. the space between, you know, and this book is, uh, you know, it's a story that is about that space between. It's about the possibilities of it, but also the pitfalls. And, um, yeah, so, I, you know, going back to that, um, you know, the more I've sort of thought about this and written this book, the more that I actually see uh, people like Freddie Timms as the stranger artist in that equation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting point you make, and certainly there's a, in Central Australia at least, there's a, a history of these uh, remarkable individuals um, who sort of cross cultural and linguistic borders um, I'm thinking particularly of uh, Albert Namajira uh, and, and the events that he set off and also Kapa Jambajimba who um, happened to be at this sort of node where a whole lot of language group, groups intersected uh, around Papunya and uh, he, he moved across 
um, and was as much a protagonist um, of the uh, world or the art world changing events that uh, came out of Papunya as as uh, Jeffrey Barden, who is the the white stranger. Um, yeah, it, it, it'd be it'd be uh, interesting to uh, judge their strangeness in relationship to each other, but that's that's quite another question. Uh, well, I, I, th- I think you're totally right there that there is there, there's a whole lineage of that, and for me, it's the driving you know it's the driving indicator of art from those sorts of regions, you know, and um, yeah, mm. it's it's definitely a thread. And uh, it's sort of a thread um, that probably provides us, I mean, you know, it's, it's those sort of intimate one-to-one relationships where these, these things are formed, you know, and I sort of think, um, again, that's just such a, uh, a key part. And having worked in these environments myself, and I know you've also worked uh, in environments with Indigenous artists uh, at art centres or in similar settings, and you sort of know how important those one-to-one relationships are. There's really nothing, um, you know, there's, there's correlations you can make, but I think it's a very specific thing that happens as well. So to get back to the major protagonist, uh, Tony Oliver, um, he, he was a stranger in that sense, but uh, what particular ways did he work um, at the, the various locations that Jirawan was located in. What, what characterises his, his working style? What particular, because he's associated with a kind of um, amazing trajectory uh, of an art movement over a very short time. Um, what did he bring to, to that mix? Uh, it's a really good question. Um... And I think, you know, one thing I sort of want to be careful about is making sort of statements that uh, sort of uh, kind of suggest that he's like totally different to others because there are, there's, there's a number of key players. I mean, there must have been hundreds of white fellows by now who have worked at art centres, right, and worked with Aboriginal artists. And among them, I think there's probably, you know, a small handful that are as sort of influential and uh, in sort of their presence is sort of felt in a way that's not at all unlike or dissimilar to the the presence of Tony Oliver and that sort of Jirawan formation and those artists. But I think Tony did bring something um, which was probably quite uh, unique, which is a sort of an intersection between um, being someone who very much had the spirit of an artist and a sort of a very, I guess, modernist inflected belief in the capacity of creativity and art making to to capture sort of emotion in a very sort of um, unironic sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, so the sort of the the, the heart of an artist, but also um, someone who had been an art dealer who was used to sort of representing art in a sort of a um, not so much a commercial setting, although he did run commercial galleries, but in that sort of intermediary sense. And so he had gone, and if anyone's read the book, you'll know, as a young sort of uh, graduate of an art school, I believe, in Melbourne, he opened a gallery 
um, off, you know, uh, off his own back, basically, in Gertrude Street in Fitzroy. And within a couple of years of opening, perhaps sooner, um, he had travelled to New York and he was holding exhibitions of people like Andy Warhol, you know, and uh, eventually uh, an exhibition of Philip Guston's drawings. Um, and there was a sort of a, I think even then there was this kind of singular kind of uh, slightly visionary quality to that. And I think that's, he brought that into the Kimberley in a really strange way. And the, the um, and I think in a really effective way. And I kind of like these sorts of connections because um, when we speak about Aboriginal painting in the non-Aboriginal sort of art world, you know, to make sort of a, a bit of a clumsy distinction, but when, when we speak about it in the broader art world, you know, there's always this idea of its accidental resonance with Western mm. painting perhaps. And... Um, I think you can quite easily make these these links. So you might sort of say with a Paddy Bedford, you know, especially a late Paddy Bedford, that they they look a little bit like Philip Gaston's. But you know, it's not so much an accident when you can make these connections through the intermediary straight to these sort of great artists of the 20th century. I mean, these ideas were at play, and they were probably at play uh, in a studio, sort at the studio level as well. Um, and I find that, you know, a really sort of interesting, I guess, compression of history and an interesting compression of sort of cultural spaces as well. You know, the idea that, uh, yeah, 20th century American painting does, in a sense, directly touch, you know, late 20th century Aboriginal painting, you know, made in these contexts that we refer to somewhat imperfectly as remote, you know. Well, I'm reminded of um, a, a quote I read a couple of days ago of Eric Michaels, who was a particular, prov particularly provocative uh, American anthropologist who lived in uh, Australia uh, and worked at Yundamu. Uh, he, he wrote in 1988 that uh, arts advisors can deny influencing Indigenous art until they're mauve in the face. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit of this, but uh, Michael's argued that uh, over and above any, any suggestion by word, look or gesture or price, the selection and supply of materials was the art advisor's determining responsibility. And I think um, that plays out big time uh, in the Jirawan uh, uh, studio context and the relationship between... Um, Tony and, um, you know, people like Paddy Bedford uh, are, are all about that kind of picking the materials and the scale uh, and, the, and somehow uh, recognising the gesture that will translate without complex uh, semantic manoeuvres into the, the white cube. Um, and I think that's what you were uh, alluding to before with Tony's experience with these sort of major uh, 20th century uh, American figures, Warhol and Guston. Uh, that kind of um, knowingness uh, it translated in the studio in some kind of remarkable alchemical way. Um, I think that's right. And I think it's it's nice that you sort of bring up Eric Michaels, not just because we've spoken about him before, but um, 
because I've always had this sense that with with Eric Michaels, he's he's a sort of a very prescient voice in all sorts of areas, actually. Um, and I, I sort of always felt that he could do that because he wasn't Australian and he wasn't sort of dealing with these kind of, uh, I guess, levels of anxiety that sort of attend this space um, for Australian commentators, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Um, and he sort of acts somewhat um, brazenly in there. I mean, he's classic sort of iconoclast in that he'll say whatever, whatever anyone's saying behind the scenes, he'll stage sort of quite comfortably and quite happily in the foreground, right? And I think that's why he's, he remains a sort of important commentator. Um, and one of the things, I mean, as you know, he was writing about the production of new media in Yuen Demu, but one of the things he uh, sort of latched onto very quickly was the early production of acrylic painting as well and you know what he got absolutely right and what he sort of did which was counter to a lot of the other people was he I think recognized that the inauthenticity was the point you know it wasn't the problem and I sort of think that uh, that's a very contentious uh, uh, statement you made right there yeah well yeah (laughs) But and I sort of think that that Christians also, are encouraged on that subject. <laughs> <laughs> but and I, I mean that in the best possible way. You know, I sort of think we uh, sometimes that people fall over themselves to sort of um, sort of see this misguided authenticity in some of this creative practice. But um, I personally don't think that paintings produced for white audiences were ever meant to be authentic in those terms. They've always been hybrid. And I think Tony, and he's not the only art coordinator to realise this, but he's someone who who realised that at a sort of an incohate bodily level and sort of ran with it, right? So, well, you know, what can we do here? And sort of, I think, shaped uh, and guided some of those practices exceedingly successful and exceedingly well. And um, I remember seeing Paddy Bedford's retrospective in 2006 at the MCA and sort of being, uh, feeling even then without knowing sort of the various complexities and histories that play into it, that it felt like a keynote moment in Australian painting for so many reasons. And part of it was the tightness of the vision. And one of the things that I have always come back to um, about Paddy Bedford's work is this idea that, you know, all those works were produced with the exception of a very, very few um, with his chosen intermediary present. And I sort of think that's a beautiful thing, you know. So it's an entire body of work. And I think there's, uh, again, there's various correlations you can make to non-Indigenous context, but I also think it's a very singular and very sort of special thing. Mm. It's remarkable, really, that he um, uh, kept himself in in that shape, in that um, partnership, unlike a lot of other uh, great Indigenous artists who, uh, you know, I'm thinking of Clifford Possum in particular, who who carried his vision from uh, Central Australia and to Adelaide and later to Melbourne and was always uh, prided himself on his individual capacity to realise his vision and recall his country wherever he was. But it, uh, 
couple of weeks ago we spoke about this uh, session and just to delve a little bit more into uh, Paddy Bedford's work, you, you made a, um interesting um, comparison of the form, um, those large rounded forms of uh, Paddy Bedford's with cattle brands. Uh, and it's not something you explore too much in the book, but it, it seems to me a really intriguing um, uh, question is the extent to which uh, Paddy Bedford's experience uh, paintings are affected by his experience as a stockman rather than a custodian, if you can artificially split those two things from a man, man called Paddy Bedford after Bedford Downs, <laughs> a pastoral station. That's probably the, the most sort of fundamental expression of that. And I think, you know, this is a story that's been told about um, Paddy Bedford for a long time, is that his name comes directly from the station he was born on, which was Bedford Downs. And his uh, first name comes from the manager or owner of that station, Paddy, Bed uh, Paddy Quilty. And, uh, you know, for people who haven't read the book or haven't sort of looked in depth at Paddy's paintings about a massacre that happened on uh, Bedford Downs, um, he, you know, his namesake was, you know, is named as the perpetrator of that massacre. So it's a, it's a, it's a history that is so intrinsically tied up in identity and it, it, it actually sort of um, I find it quite quite confronting to even sort of talk about it because it's um, you know I mean these the pastoral industry was again very complex beast but um, it's also just a horribly brutal sort of story um, about dispossession and about murder and violence and some of that is in the book i mean there's relatively long sort of uh parts of that book that sort of unpack some of that contact history and um as much as i value the research i sort of undertook and you know the opportunity to write a book like that i sort of you know i don't want to sort of think about that too much ever again because it's shocking and you know i sort of know that um so many people from that region don't have that sort of uh, privilege to sort of, you know, put that behind them, you know, it's still part of everyday life. So when we go down this route of like how much does a painter like Paddy Bedford draw his identity from those days, I think very, very directly, you know, very directly. And, um, but there's also an, another interesting sort of comparison there that one can make, which is the idea of, you know, the stock, uh, you know, the pastoral history producing a local industry which enables um, then young Aboriginal people and Aboriginal men to sort of become, uh, you know, uh, labourers within a white economy. And, um, I mean, without sort of making a, a sort of gross um, mis... Uh, you know, I, I sort of... Without sort of drawing the bow too long, I sort of do... I've always wondered about this, uh, you know, relationship there between senior artists who have experience in that initial industry, which is the pastoral industry, and their later experience in the art industry. Um, 
and some of the same sorts of figures we see, you know, recurring in both industries. I mean, there's very rapacious in interests in the art industry as well. And uh, there's lots of stories about uh, Aboriginal artists being exploited. Um, but they are sort of players in, you know, these, I guess, hybrid economies that occur in those societies. So I sort of think um, the pastoral history is integral to the paintings and vice versa. And I think in the Kimberley especially, and maybe in parts of the desert that you're familiar with, John, um, that's particularly prominent because a lot of the key artists, and this dates right back to Robert Thomas, you know, their first identity is as stockmen. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And par part of that, um, and this is very much the case with Freddie Timms who came after Robert Thomas and was of a younger generation than people like Rover Thomas and Paddy Bedford. But as a stockman, he became intimately familiar with all, you know, all this vast area of country. And uh, my understanding of his practice was he would paint much more from the perspective as a stockman, someone who passed through country rather yeah. than a sort of an ancestral owner of certain tracts of country. Well, I think uh, Vivian Johnson, who uh, may well be amongst the audience out there, um, she made a point in her work on Clifford Possum that uh, Clifford's sort of uh, encyclopedic vision of uh, Amadjara and Aranda country um, came as a large part from his really broad experience uh, over a whole lot of different stations away from his ancestral country. But also it was his vision was a kind of afforded by a slightly elevated perspective that you get from a horse. <laughs> the slightly different uh, phenomenological experience of being a, uh, a stockman than a, than a hunter. But um, maybe that's a, a little too detailed a level to, um, to go into here. I know Miriam's keen to get to questions in a couple of minutes, and, but I, I want to talk for uh, just a few minutes about um, uh, the book uh, at a more literary level. Um, what I really uh, appreciated and enjoyed about the book was its, uh, it's a seamless narrative um, you're never jolted out uh, of the uh, story to sort of consider the theory or to um, uh, to go to another uh, place that's totally separate from from the kind of visceral reality of the events that are unfolding. So I, I wonder if you could speak for a moment about your process of integrating the uh, numerous voices that are in the book into that one, one unified uh, narrative? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, I felt I was lucky to find a propulsive story and find a way into that story uh, through someone who was sort of a primary participant. Um, and there's lots of perspectives represented in the book. I don't know how many people I interviewed, but I mean, it is a bit of a patchwork or a jigsaw of like uh, various perspectives. And obviously Tony Oliver provides a through line and we sort of eventually uh, sort of see through his, the frame of his experiences. But 
at every part of that story, there's other key informants as well um, who may sort of just provide a glimpse from a different perspective at a certain time or whose story might sort of play through in a kind of more uh, direct way. I mean, I'll also say there's plenty of people who aren't represented in the story. And with a story this kind of complex, it's exceedingly hard. I mean, some people don't uh, want to talk to you, perhaps. Um, some people uh, don't sort of provide material you can use. So there's, there's you know, it's, it's almost like the book itself is a, a sort of an organism that you can only shape, you know, and it sort of tells you what, you know, it needs to be. And part of that, you know, in a book like this, which is based on conversation, part of that comes from the kind of conversations you can have and the kind of ways that people are, um, I guess, willing to talk and remember things. Um, I think one of the key things about the book for me is it's actually, uh, it actually became about the nature of memory as well, you know, and for that reason, it's, um, you know, it's a reliable version of events for sure, but it's also a version of events that allows for um, a kind of uh, the way in which uh, memories shift and change, you know, the way in which people uh, recall things and the way in which people may recall things differently. And I sort of felt it needed that, uh, that level um, of, I guess, malleability because uh, the field I was trying to write about is, is quite difficult. And um, when you have so many players in the mix, you sort of have to um, you know, find a way, I guess, to represent uh, various perspectives. Um, at, at, at a specific level, at, at a technical level, um, how did you manage to capture the the vernacular episodes that are that really heighten the book? What in, instrument? Through storytelling, I was lucky uh, not just through Tony Oliver, but a number of people uh, were the kind of uh, interlocutors who um, are storytellers as well. You mm -hmm. know, and because of that, uh, you sort of you gain access not just to the chronological facts of the story, but to, you know, I guess um, the, the narrative sort of uh, possibilities of the story as well. Um, and I should also say that there's also a vast amount of archival material that sort of backed up this book as well. And even though, you know, I felt that the story I was telling was in a strange way, a kind of, um, you know, there were lot there were lots of sort of like uh, intimate sort of things I was reaching for. Um, I guess uh, in a strange way, it's an exceedingly well documented period as well. In that mm. there's a huge amount of photographs that date right through that book, and there's actually uh, a lot a lot of recorded material, both visual and audio. And so all those things also allow, you know, me as a writer to construct not just a um, a historical sort of account, but to try try and attempt to uh, construct a sort of a granular account of that social world and to try and sort of uh, deal with these uh, more literary things like character and narrative um, and things like this, yeah. I think you really succeed on, on that level. Uh, it's a great read. Thank you. But, Miriam, um, 
sounds like that uh, people have been asking some questions in the background and we should get to them with uh, those questions with the time that we've got left. Actually, we've all been listening very intently, but I just wanted to potentially open it up in case people wanted to ask uh, questions um, verbally. Um, just jump in, press space bar or unmute yourself. Verity, I think you've just unmuted. Yes, hello. Um, I've just got a question for Quentin. Um, I, I totally understand how the politics could have been really quite overwhelming and when you're talking about forming this story. Um, I'm very interested in the area when Rusty Peters and Peter Adset were responding to each other's paintings in two laws versus... Mm -hmm if you can separate this, versus Tony Oliver and Paddy Bedford and the way that they worked. Could you talk about those two different ways of um, white fellas working with, with um, Indigenous painters? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and it's, I mean, that, that instance of a, another kind of... Uh, working relationship is in there for exactly that reason because it's a it's a really sort of key contrast in my mind um, in terms of uh, what was kind of happening or what potentially could happen um, with uh, someone like Tony Oliver in the studio um, and potentially what could happen with someone like Rusty Peters and uh, Peter Adset in the studio. And I guess I would answer it by saying that, you know, all four of the people sort of involved in that, you know, are very different people, you know. Um, uh, Tony and Peter Adset are very different kinds of personalities, you know, and if we can characterise them both as artists, they're very different kinds of artists. I mean, Peter Adset is, um, in my mind, quite a conceptually driven painter. And, uh, but um, I would also say I never had the um, uh, sort of privilege to meet Paddy Bedford, but from everything I know about him, I would say he and Rusty Peters are very different people as well and have a very different approach to painting. So at one level, uh, that comes down to the certain, the differences come down to the kind of personalities involved, you know. Um, what about the response though, like Peter and Rusty, Mm. Uh, Rusty would paint and then Peter responded to that painting. Mm. Um, painting yeah, too. so it was it was set out in a very different uh, fashion, um, but it was also a collaborative undertaking. I mean, they were working on a, on a piece that was, uh, you know, e each of them had a clearly identified role as artists in it. But Peter Adset, and I won't, um, certainly won't speak for Peter, uh, for Rusty Peters because um, I've only ever spoken to him in the most indirect way about that work and you know his sort of um, perspective on that is actually drawn from material that was actually published around the production of that work so um, I can only guess at how he sort of sees that Two Laws project now but I know that Peter Adset um, certainly uh, saw it as something that needed to be very distinct, you know, each voice needed to be separate and it was this call and response thing, you know. Um, and I, I use it because it's sort of around that moment that um, a different kind of uh, sort of working 
um, relationship was sort of um, being undertaken, uh, particularly around the um, exhibition Blood on the Spin Effects, which was held in Melbourne, you know, yeah. not so long after Two Laws, where you sort of do have, I guess, an implicit um, presence of, you know, the the white intermediary in those paintings through things like scale, through things like palette, through things like uh, medium. Um, but it's on a, of a totally different tenor and a totally different measure than uh, this kind of, uh, you know, one could say more reticent approach that someone like um, Peter Adset had uh, enacted. More reticent, but probably more uh, sustainable as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I think your book's wonderful. I've really enjoyed reading it. Oh, thank you. Miriam, is uh, anyone else jumping up? Um, I, I have a question. It's oh. here. Hi, Vivian. Hi, Quentin. Nice to meet you. Hi. Thanks Hi, for Vivian. a very interesting conversation. Um, oh, I have a right. few questions. Um, and I so I'd known you were there, I would have um, been a lot more uh, nervous anyway. Hi. <laughs> Um, I have one about inauthenticity, but I won't go there. Um, let's be just friends. Um, and <laughs> um, but no, I'll give I, you my I, email address after the fact, and you can. Uh, yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Um, I thought it would be interesting to talk about um, the fact that both you and John have been um, art advisors, mm -hmm. and um, in a very different mode to. Tony Oliver, who's kind of the author um, version of the art advisor, if you understand the analogy. Um, I, I just wanted to you to kind of reflect on that contrast and say, as someone who's been an art advisor yourself, um, what do you think of his approach, particularly in the light of what I didn't know and what you mentioned in the beginning is that um, Jurawan was was no more after Tony left. Uh, well, I should clarify that and say it did Maybe continue in some form for a while, but um, I think the the case can be made that it was actually, um, you know, part of the driving energy was that, uh, well, the kind of personalities that first gathered around it. Um, uh, but as as an art coordinator. Um, it's an interesting question. Um, what, what, what exactly are, are you asking? What, um, what I think of Tony's practice? Well, yeah, I, I'm just asking you to sort of compare and contrast your approach as an mm. art coordinator with his. In terms of those issues that Eric mm. Michaels was raising, for example. I mean, I find it actually a difficult question to answer because, um, I mean, I, look, I, I think there's a kind of a standardised approach to what we might call art coordination, which is uh, far more um, hands-off than the model that uh, Tony may have championed or other people like him. Um, and, you know, in, in a way that has its benefits, but also perhaps, um, you know, Tony's model reaches for something different again, you know. And I, I sort of think the 
difficulty of answering this question is maybe um, comes down to a sort of, you know, making generalizations. Um, and that's something I tried not to do too much in the book. I may have fallen mm. into that sort of trap here and there. But what I wanted to really, uh, I guess, uh, communicate was that, you know, we're talking about a, a very singular set of people and a very singular set of personalities. And for me, it was never going to be the book that, you know, sort of unveiled some theory of uh, art coordination or how to represent Aboriginal art or, you know, sustainability or lack thereof. It was really going to be a book that sort of tried to unpack the sort of human motivations of a moment and a sort of a history um, and to do that in a sort of a, a, a context that didn't, um, that tried not to pass a judgment, but also tried not to sort of say, this is the way forward. You know, it's just, for me, it's just this sort of fantastic um, moment of art history. It describes a very sort of, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of movement, you know, a, a period of time where something rose and fell on the energies of, uh, you know, a group of people. Fair enough. Yeah. John, and I, I, yeah, John might have something. Mm. Um, well, thinking about uh, art centre coordinators or art advisors or whatever, um, I've sort of broken it down into uh, three rough categories, uh, three sort of locations along a spectrum, I suppose. One is the servant, um, pe <laughs> people who see themselves, uh, and this, the word comes from a, a good friend of mine who's been doing this kind of work for a long time, um, who, uh, who, who whose work is to create the conditions for an artist to work whether that involves uh, getting the materials together uh, as so many artists are older now, it can involve transport backwards and forwards from, from home to the art centre, uh, right down uh, and most often is around palette, you know, mixing paint and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's the collaborator model that uh, Vivian, I think um, someone you know quite well, Tim Johnson, and uh, people you know quite well, uh, Emmett Tillers, uh, sort of promoted, you know, early on uh, in the mid-1980s, uh, people who were searching uh, in a somewhat utopian way for a shared vision. And then at the, uh, the other end of the spectrum, there's the artistic director, and uh, Tony Oliver um, had a business, according to Quentin, had his business card and position um, artistic director. So he certainly identifies on that extreme point on, on the spectrum. Uh, my observation of art centres uh, over the, the last decade or so is that probably all of these uh, different approaches, the uh, servant, the collaborator and the artistic director um, happen in most art centres at any one point in the day and mm. uh, interwoven to a, um, to a greater or lesser extent according to personality and contingency. 
Um, and I suppose the, the bigger question that Vivian, you're getting to about what what this is all about, um, this sort of art advisor question, um, is whether the role of the art advisor is to uh, to the industry, that is to um, provide a sustainable income to a group of artists, uh, their employees, employers, or whether it's to a sort of a, a, an aesthetic uh, goal, the creation of, of, of um, uh, extraordinary art. Uh, and I think that it sort of moves along that uh, spectrum according to where you identify your position as, uh, you know, your responsibilities to the artists or to the uh, greater aesthetic realm. I think that's a good point. Very good answer. Yeah. Mm, I think that's a good point. I mean, I, I'll just pick up on something there. Um, and I, I think you're totally right in suggesting those sort of the breakdown of three models that you sort of put forward are actually um, uh, interwoven, you know, and if we look at them honestly, you know, each, each of them sort of uh, holds the other somehow, you know, and it's, a, it's about inflection points and I think personalities. Um, and I think that's true for so many of those kind of uh, intercultural sort of collaborative roles that exist um, in, you know, places like we're talking about, you know, whether or not people are working in, you know, the health clinic or the school. I mean, there's there's a sort of an amazing push and pull uh, in terms of, you know, this ever-changing power dynamic between, you know, the visitor and um, or, or the interloper or the guest, you know, and the local, you know. And I sort of think, again, this goes to that space of, you know, which we've spoken about early on when we talked about the title, The Stranger Artist. It goes into that complexity um, and I would never trust an art advisor who could uh, actually uh, unthread those roles and say mm -hmm. with any with any kind of uh, sort of uh, certainty that I'm this and not that mm -hmm. and uh, I think uh, giving Tony Oliver his due I think he would be that person as well he may have had artistic director written on his business card but he was certain at certainly at times you know laboring in the guts of that organization mm -hmm. especially at the beginning mm -hmm. in a way that i think probably um outstrips uh most um most recent art coordinators at least who sort of step into sort of small small scale organizations and institutions which are sort of set up and you know ready to go um so yeah yeah no, that's very true it's hmm. nice oh, sort of quick great, yeah perfect We've talked at length about the book, and and again, it's nice to say publicly how how wonderful I think it is. Um, I'm interested from a literary perspective. Were there were there books that um, you feel like you situated yours within? Was there a, a particular um, reference points that you drew on in in shaping your narrative? Yeah, I think you know both uh, consciously and unconsciously. There's there's a number of um, a number of books, and I probably can't sort of go into them in too much detail. But um, uh, look, I think um, 
there's uh, look, I, th I think Chloe Hooper's The Tall Man is sort mm -hmm. of a fairly exemplary example of um, a sort of narrative non-fiction non uh, book that sort of cuts, um, certainly not into the art world, but cuts into those broader sort of uh, issues, which uh, I hope my book does about, you know, colonial sort of inheritance and, uh, you know, the sort of um, the weight of history as it sort of sits upon uh, Indigenous people in Australia, but also um, how it must be negotiated by non-Indigenous people. Um, thematically, you know, I've I've always been interested in that book, but um, Chloe Hoop is also a very uh, fantastic writer. Um, but there's also other books as well. I mean, there's a lot of uh, narrative nonfiction coming out of, you know, the American tradition of the form, which I sort of certainly um, drew on uh, consciously or not. So, yeah, there's, a, there's sort of a lot of different examples, I think. If we, if we don't have any more questions, we might um, just throw back to John and see if we want to finish with a final question and then maybe do a little wrap up. Um, I think that's probably a really good place to, uh, to, to stop. It's a substantial place to stop. But I, there was one little question that I hope we would get to um, for the academics out there or the has-been academics or whoever um, or would be. Uh, is the relationship between the thesis, uh, which Quentin did, and the and the, the book he wanted to write, which is a stranger artist? <laughs> um, I don't know how much longer we have, John, but it's a com it's sort of a complex question. I'm I'm glad you've asked it, um, uh, and I, I don't know if I can provide a sort of succinct answer to that beyond saying that uh, doing a thesis is a good way to learn how to write because you have to essentially um, you essentially have to write a, what doubles as a manuscript you know and uh, I think by doing the thesis I realized I could you know I could write a sort of 90,000 word book I mean it wouldn't be easy but I sort of knew I could sort of do that and uh, the frustrations I had um, in writing a thesis uh, very different to the frustrations I had in writing a book but um, you know a lot of those frustrations were about um, you know where where to sort of let in uh, let let oxygen into the into the writing and how and uh, I sort of think you know I won't go into this in any detail but I would say that the key difference for me is um, to sort of not be the sort of the objective voice in the equation um, and to not uh, have to sort of answer the questions that you set up. And for me, you know, the measure of a good piece of uh, literary writing is essentially like the number of questions it leaves in your mind afterwards, right? And um, I sort of, you know, I sort of felt this story lent itself to that treatment because, you know, it, it's, it's, complex and difficult and I think I would do it a great injustice if I, I just sort of set out to, um, you know, answer it in any kind of definitive way. So, yeah. Thanks. I think that's, uh, that's an excellent way to finish, Miriam.
Fantastic. Look, thank yeah. you both so much. We've had lots of wonderful comments of thanks as people have uh, popped off to other meetings, but thank you all very much for joining us um, for Book Club. We have uh, a couple more book clubs coming up, the next being uh, Van Badham, who's speaking on the 8th of July, uh, followed by Tony Birch on the 29th of July, uh, and continuing in this format um, for the foreseeable future. <laughs> um, but thank you again, John and Quentin, so much for your time and um, a really rich discussion. Thank you. In real Can I just say, um, yeah, I'll just say thanks, Miriam, for the opportunity as well. And thanks also to John, uh, who's done um, so much interesting work in this field for so many years and um, we're all looking very much forward to his uh, thesis being uh, available and ready for publication soon I hope. Yeah thanks Quinn. Thanks John. Good on you.